From this evening, I must give the British people a very simple instruction. You must stay at home. Because the critical thing we must do to stop the disease spreading between households, that is why people will only be allowed to leave their home for the following very limited purposes. Shopping for basic necessities as infrequently as possible. One form of exercise a day, for example, a run, walk or cycle, alone or with members of your household. Any medical need to provide care or to help a vulnerable person. And travelling to and from work, but only where this is absolutely necessary and cannot be done from home. That's all. These are the only reasons you should leave your home. Hello everyone, this is a reading of chapter 3 of the Measuring the Mandate report, the chapter on lockdowns. The report itself, which contains all the sources backing up the claims I'm about to make, is available on Amazon and also freely downloadable from my website. There's a link in the information box. Okay, here we go. The dawning of a new decade may bring with it a sense of optimism. For our current one, there was something exciting about living in the 20s, with its historic connotations of social liberation and celebration. If, at a New Year's Eve party, someone had prophesied that the majority of the world's liberal democracies would soon be imposing business closures and a form of house arrest on their citizens, they would have appeared quite mad. The roaring 1920s took over nine years to crash. Ours did so within three months. The consequences of lockdowns were as brutal as they were predictable. The United Nations warned of multiple famines of biblical proportions that would kill hundreds of thousands of children, whilst Oxfam cautioned that the economic crisis is potentially going to be even more severe than the health crisis, moving half a billion people into poverty. Commenting on cutbacks in essential medical care, the BBC speculated that most COVID-19 deaths won't be from the virus. The Daily Mail reported that hundreds of cancers were being missed each week because screening has been suspended. The implications of isolation for the elderly scarcely need pointing out, yet it's worth doing so anyway. To quote from Amnesty International's report on the UK government's abuse of the elderly, After not seeing mum for months, I found her terribly weakened, both physically and mentally. We were sitting in the garden several metres apart, and she was crying all the time. Communicating at a distance is exhausting for her, as she can't hear properly. Mum doesn't have dementia, and before Covid used to have a lot of visitors. Friends who live nearby visited every day. Now she has lost the will to live. End quote. And begin new quote. For five and a half months, I only had window visits, and during the last window visit, I touched my mum's hand through the small opening, having first used hand sanitizer. I did so because mum was in pain and was crying. A carer saw this and my mum was put in isolation for two weeks. My mum already had Covid two months earlier, and both my mum and I tested negative two days after the incident. But despite this, she was still kept in isolation for the full two weeks. This is unnecessary and cruel. Before lockdown, my mum was mobile and I used to take her out often. But since lockdown, she has been kept in a wheelchair and has deteriorated sharply. Yesterday I had the first garden visit and for the first time she could no longer have a conversation. End quote. What could justify the implementation of a policy 
guaranteed to cause millions of deaths, decimate the global economy, and deprive people of all quality in their lives. Surely, the precautionary principle would demand overwhelming evidence that the policy would save substantially more lives than it destroyed. What was the historical precedence for all this? Even if the previously mentioned pessimistic New Year's reveler had been a student of pandemic preparedness, it's unlikely he would have been able to predict lockdowns. World Health Organization Public Health Measure Advice as of 2019 recommends the voluntary isolation of sick individuals in their homes. Even in doing so, it acknowledges this poses an increased risk of infection to those cohabiting, and that older adults who live alone may not receive sufficient care and support when home isolation is implemented. The report further acknowledges that the effectiveness of isolation is moderate, and that the quality of evidence supporting it is very low. The duration of isolation is reckoned to be between five and seven days. The quarantining of exposed individuals is not recommended, due to the ethical considerations, a very low quality of evidence, and no obvious rationale for this measure. The mandatory quarantining of an entire population of healthy individuals is not even considered. School and workplace closures and avoiding crowds are all conditionally recommended in extreme circumstances. This semi-recommendation comes with the caveat that these interventions obviously bring their own harms and that there is very low overall quality of evidence that they reduce transmission. International travel restrictions are conditionally recommended during the early stage of a localised extraordinary severe pandemic for a limited period of time, with the same caveats that they bring harms and have a low quality of supporting evidence. Full border closures are not recommended due to very low quality of evidence, economic consequences, and resource and ethical implications. These were the positions of the WHO when the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP, alerted them to an outbreak of viral pneumonia on the 31st of December 2019. On the 23rd of January, the CCP ordered a lockdown of 58 million people in Hubei province. At this point, a total of 18 people had been classified as dying of COVID-19 in Wuhan. Wuhan has a population of around 9 million and is known as Smog City. The CCP had violently suppressed protests there over air pollution, which does not seem to have been considered a factor in these deaths. At this time, strange videos emerged of people purportedly from Wuhan dropping dead in the streets. Whether these videos were deliberate propaganda, or just the internet doing its thing, is unknown. But they had the effect of terrifying the world. Also at this time, there was still no indication that Western health authorities favoured lockdowns, with Anthony Fauci commenting on the 28th of February, Quote, That's something that I don't think we could possibly do in the United States. I can't imagine shutting down New York or Los Angeles. But the judgment on the part of the Chinese health authorities is that given the fact that it's spreading throughout the provinces, it's their judgment that this is something that in fact is going to help in containing it. Whether or not it does or does not is really open to question, because historically, when you shut things down, it doesn't have a major effect. End quote. The WHO acknowledged the uniqueness of the CCP's approach, saying, begin quote, It has not been tried before as a public health measure, so we cannot at this stage say it will or will not work. 
The lockdown of 11 million people is unprecedented in public health history, so it's certainly not a recommendation the WHO has made. End quote. On the 30th of January, Italy's Prime Minister, Giuseppe Conte, declared a six-month state of emergency after two Chinese tourists from Wuhan fell ill and tested positive for COVID-19. Conte was president of Italy's Five Star Movement, which for the previous two years had sought closer economic ties to China. Perhaps strangely, these closer ties involved healthcare. A plan of action on health cooperation between the two countries had been signed in March of 2019 and further updated in November. This included cooperation in the prevention of infectious diseases. This was a continuation of health cooperation plans between Italy and China, first launched in the year 2000 by former Prime Minister Massimo de Alema, a one-time member of Italy's Communist Party. It is worth mentioning that de Alema now serves as honorary president of the Silk Road Cities Alliance, a Chinese state organisation. On the 22nd of February, 15 cases of COVID were detected and a 15-day lockdown was implemented in the northern provinces of Lombardy and Veneto to slow the spread. This was on the basis of the deaths of seven people, the overwhelming majority of whom were elderly people who had also been suffering from other health issues. To put this in context, an average February in Italy sees somewhere between 50 and 60,000 deaths. The entire country would follow the north into lockdown on March the 9th. Italy had leapfrogged China to put nearly 60 million people in lockdown, the largest one in human history. It is only after the lockdowns were in effect that the excess mortality appeared. And here I have a graph that shows February of 2020 to be a completely normal year in Italy for excess mortality, with the massive spike occurring in March. As explored in chapter 1, excess deaths in Italy were severely imbalanced towards the north of the country, and likely substantially iatrogenic in nature, iatrogenic being doctor or medically induced deaths. Central to Italy's lockdown policy was Health Minister Roberto Speranza. Speranza was labelled the most left-wing health minister in Italian history. In October 2020, he published a book, Because We Will Heal, From the Hardest Days to a New Idea of Health. The book was written during the summer, when excess mortality in Italy had receded. It was hastily withdrawn from sale due to the death rate spiking again that same month. Ostensibly, this was because Sperenza was too busy to devote time to presentations, but it has never gone back on sale, indicating the premature celebration of success had become embarrassing. Attorney Michael Senger, author of Snake Oil, How Xi Jinping Shut Down the World, proposes that Sperenza might have scrapped his book due to it being too candid about his ideological reasons for locking 60 million people down. Speaking of the Lombardi and Veneto lockdown, Sperenza writes, This is a measure with worrying implications for the economic and social fabric, but also with a terrible symbolic impact. Restricting citizens' freedom of movement, sending the army to check that closures are respected. Could the protection of the right to health, recognised by Article 32 of the Constitution, lead us to restrict other fundamental rights guaranteed by the Constitution? And then, will this type of intervention really work to stop the contagion? No other Western country has yet experienced this virus and the management strategies it requires. The only precedent we can look to is China, with a very different cultural, political and institutional model from ours. In Italy, everyone has been saying for weeks it would be impossible to do what China has done. 
but what if it were necessary? End quote. In spite of Speranza describing himself as a staunch rationalist who has a true faith in science, it is clear that no science underpinned Italy's lockdown, only the recommendation of the Chinese Communist Party. One study was commissioned using Chinese data, but was never published. Speranza's book reveals his ideological drives. Begin quote. I am convinced that we have a unique opportunity to entrench a new idea of the left, based on a commitment that today everyone recognises is needed, to defend and relaunch fundamental public goods. We have experienced unbridled individualism. We have undergone its economic and social translation, neoliberalism. Individualism has weakened social networks and fragmented representation. It was thought that the state was no longer needed, that it should be reduced to a minimum, that all this interference was a nuisance, because society and the economy were able to regulate themselves. They just had to be left free. The months of COVID, however, have accelerated a rethinking process of which some first signs were already visible. We have rediscovered how important fundamental public goods are, starting with the protection of health. For the first time, after many years, the left is not going against the wind. We have been in the long phase in which history seemed to go in the direction of neoliberal individualism, and in our going against the wind, looking for that route, fighting against solutions that were a bit messy and that had little to do with values of the left. In Italy, we have experienced a painful split in the main centre-left party. Today, things are changing, and an idea of the left can be reaffirmed, starting from fundamental public goods and a new role of the state. End quote. Just as China made unthinkable lockdowns possible in Italy, so Italy opened the possibility for the rest of the world. Suddenly, the WHO changed its tune. Abandoning its pandemic preparedness advice of only five months earlier, it declared, the measures China has taken are good not only for that country, but also for the rest of the world. End quote. This was at a time when China was reporting 170 deaths from COVID-19, not enough to make a dent in the typical pneumonia deaths from the Hubei province. The CCP was welding people inside their homes, causing some to be burnt alive. WHO Director General Dr. Tedros, a man who had once been a member of one of the most oppressive governments in the world, now said, In many ways, China is actually setting a new standard for outbreak response. Our greatest concern is the potential for the virus to spread to countries with weaker health systems, and which are ill-prepared to deal with it. End quote. On the 24th of February, the World Health Organization declared, China didn't approach this new virus with an old strategy for one disease or another disease. It developed its own approach to a new disease and extraordinarily has turned around this disease with strategies most of the world didn't think would work. What China has demonstrated is, you have to do this. If you do it, you can save lives and prevent thousands of cases of what is a very difficult disease. End quote. Scientists who had been pro-lockdown for years now seized the opportunity. Neil Ferguson led a study on case rates in the lockdown town of Vaux in Italy. Professor Ferguson claimed to show that it had been effective, which influenced the decision to lock down all of Italy on March the 9th. The study was based on testing for infections, which were demonstrably in decline before the lockdown had started. To quote Michael Senger, Ferguson justified the lockdown of the United Kingdom based on the lockdown of Italy, which had in turn been justified with a false study led in part by Ferguson himself. 
end quote. Much like Roberto Speranza of China, Professor Ferguson credited Italy with making lockdowns possible. Begin quote, It's a communist one-party state, we said. We couldn't get away with it in Europe, we thought. And then Italy did it. And we realised we could. End quote. White House Coronavirus Response Coordinator, Dr. Deborah Burks, wrote of how she became convinced of the need to lock down after seeing videos from China. Videos that were soon conclusively proven to be propaganda. Begin quote, We had to make these palatable to the administration by avoiding the obvious appearance of a full Italian lockdown. At the same time, we needed the measures to be effective at slowing the spread, which meant matching as closely as possible what Italy had done. A tall order. End quote. The initial justification for lockdowns was not to stop the virus passing through society, but to slow the spread so that hospitals would not be overwhelmed. Burks also admits that the 15 days to stop the spread was a lie. Begin quote. No sooner had we convinced the Trump administration to implement our version of a two-week shutdown than I was trying to figure out how to extend it. 15 days to slow the spread was a start, but I knew it would be just that. I didn't have the numbers in front of me yet to make the case for extending it longer, but I had two weeks to get them. However hard it had been to get the 15-day shutdown approved, getting another one would be far more difficult by many orders of magnitude. End quote. By April, more than half the world's population, some 3.9 billion people, had been placed into lockdown. It is clear that this policy, created and promoted by one of the world's most authoritarian regimes, had no real scientific underpinning and was pushed for ideological reasons by people who were entirely aware of the devastating consequences. Even if there hadn't been a deadly virus circling the world, lockdown policies, taken in totality, were guaranteed to kill millions of people. Some of those deaths would be realised immediately, such as the ones arising from denial of healthcare. Others would take weeks, such as starvation in the third world, while still more would manifest over years to come, such as cancer deaths and the loss of services due to economic contraction. To say it again, all of this was entirely apparent at the time. To quote Michael Senger once more, The world has been fighting a virus from China, with a public health policy from China, that transforms the world into China. End quote. How could this be justified? Only through the claim that lockdowns would save more lives than they cost. Absent evidence, this is simply a gamble. So was it a gamble that paid off? Subtitle. Lockdown efficacy. There are no shortage of claims that lockdowns saved millions of lives. If a strong form of the iatrogenic hypothesis, explored in chapter 1, is correct, whereby deaths attributed to COVID-19 were overwhelmingly caused by changes to medical systems, then lockdowns obviously did not save a single life. Their power could only have been destructive. A case for this can certainly be made from the data. Various scientific studies have found evidence that the COVID-19 virus was present around the world for months before its sudden emergence as a killer. In Italy, it has been identified as far back as September 2019. This seems hard to reconcile with the fact that none of the countries supposedly strongly affected by COVID 
saw any increase in mortality prior to March 2020. More specifically, they did not see any prior to the implementation of lockdowns. Here I've inserted a graph which shows five European countries, Spain, Italy, the United Kingdom, Belgium and France, that experienced high excess mortality beginning in March 2020. I've inserted vertical bars into the graph indicating the various dates these countries imposed stay-at-home orders. This is an imperfect starting point, as it is not the act of staying at home that causes excess deaths, but as they are the most extreme measure, stay-at-home orders are likely to have come shortly after changes to medical systems. The graph makes clear that lockdowns always precede excess mortality. Italy went into lockdown earlier than the other countries, and its excess deaths came proportionately earlier too. At the other end of the scale, the United Kingdom instituted lockdowns last, and was the last to see a mortality spike. The picture is similar in the United States. Here I have a graph showing 10 states which initially had the highest excess mortality. The same pattern as seen in Europe emerges, where no excess deaths are visible prior to lockdown, but a sudden spike comes immediately after. By June of 2020, Dr. Anthony Fauci had been thoroughly won over to the lockdown cause, saying, If you look at the data, now that papers have come out literally two days ago, the fact that we shut down when we did and the rest of the world did has saved hundreds of millions of infections and millions of lives. End quote. Dr. Fauci is most likely referring to a collection of papers published just a few months after lockdowns were mandated that claim to demonstrate this saving of millions of lives. The papers were based on modelling speculative predictions on how COVID might travel and how lethal it might be. They did not take into account iatrogenic deaths or the more long-term deaths that would be caused by lockdowns. They also do not seem to comport well to observations of the real world. If lockdowns really had saved millions of lives in such a short period, then the effect would be impossible to miss. Indeed, the world's media predicted as much at the time. Any country eschewing this policy would suffer cataclysmic consequences, unmissable in both the data and anecdotal observations. Is such a cataclysm visible? I opened the written chapter quoting a CNN headline reading, Deaths Saw in Country That Didn't Lock Down. CNN is referring to Sweden. It is true that Sweden did not lock down and deaths did indeed soar, but does the relationship CNN implies actually exist? I now show the previous graph of the five European countries again, this time with Sweden added. It's clear that the initial period of excess mortality rose and fell away again at about the same rate. This means that, in spite of understandable public perception to the contrary, lockdowns cannot be credited with bringing the death rate under control. Over half of the Swedish deaths at this time occurred in nursing homes, and it is clear iatrogenic factors played a substantial role. There's evidence Sweden also engaged in aggressive use of end-of-life protocols. The country experienced no excess mortality in the under-75s during 2020. So whilst there are doubtlessly many things Sweden could have done, or better to say, not done, to reduce their excess mortality, it is unclear how locking down younger people could have contributed. Supporters of lockdowns have claimed that Sweden should be compared to its Nordic neighbours, rather than Europe in general. When this comparison is made, it is clear Sweden did comparatively badly during 2020 with two big spikes in excess mortality. From February 2021 onwards, however, Sweden's excess was consistently lower than its neighbours. 
By June of 2022, the UK Office for National Statistics reported that Sweden was tied with Norway for the lowest excess deaths in Europe since the beginning of the pandemic period. Of course, many countries instituted stay-at-home orders and did not instantly see an increase in excess mortality. It is claimed this is because they locked down before the virus had time to spread, and other countries would have had the same results if only they'd locked down sooner. To justify this claim, however, it would have to be known what medical policies these countries had in place. An absence of excess mortality would indicate that, at least at this stage, they were not denying medical care to their elderly the way, for example, the United Kingdom was. The United States provides an interesting, yet challenging, basis for comparison. Different states lock down in different ways for different periods of time. Here I've inserted a bar chart showing the excess deaths attributed to COVID-19 as of August 2020. This is essentially the point where most states had concluded their first phase of lockdowns. I've placed red dots next to the states which are considered to have not locked down, or at least where restrictions were the mildest. Only one of the non-lockdown states makes it into the top half of COVID deaths, Iowa in 25th place. The others are all well into the bottom half. It can be argued that not enough time had elapsed to gain a clear picture. This graph, however, is clearly not what lockdown supporters were claiming would happen in March of 2020. After two years had elapsed, a working paper published in the National Bureau of Economic Research found that excess mortality was greater in US states where obesity, diabetes and old age were more prevalent before the pandemic. When these factors were controlled for, they found no relationship between reduced economic activity, a proxy for lockdowns, and excess mortality. Whilst there are obviously a million ways to cherry-pick data, once pre-existing health conditions are taken into account, there seems to be no evidence that lockdown states had better health outcomes. Never mind the dramatic picture we should be seeing if lockdown proponents were correct. As one further example, Japan, although imposing border controls, did not mandate an internal lockdown. The country experienced no excess mortality in 2020, in spite of case numbers increasing. Excess deaths emerged in 2022, after a high proportion of the population was vaccinated. Prior to this, Japanese people simply did not die of COVID in high enough numbers to impact excess mortality. This is hard not only for lockdown advocates to explain, but for proponents of the viral theory in general. Japan did have a high level of compliance with government requests to minimise social contact. This might be expected. If people believe a deadly virus is being breathed out by their fellow humans, they are likely to avoid them. Conclusion in an article explaining the difficulties of assessing lockdown efficacy, Associate Professor of Medicine Vinay Prasad wrote that, I suspect that for many restrictions, perhaps even most restrictions, we will never know. We will never know, for instance, if removing the rim from a basketball hoop or closing a toboggan hill slowed SARS-CoV-2 where these strategies were deployed. For larger interventions, mandatory business closures and stay-at-home orders, colloquially called lockdowns, we may someday have a scientific consensus as to whether and to what degree this practice changes viral spread. But I believe that day is years away. End quote. Dr. Prasad writes a perceptive and thought-provoking article describing the difficulties of this kind of analysis. If he is correct that lockdown effects, even on viral spread, 
are too small to be measured, then this is not a neutral conclusion. Rather, it is utterly damning. If lockdowns came at no cost, then it wouldn't really matter if the benefit was too small to measure. We know, however, that the cost was staggering. Anything less than at least equally staggering benefits, then, is an unparalleled disaster. It is clear that lockdowns simply have not demonstrated anything like the kind of benefit that would justify their cost. It is not actually clear that they have demonstrated any benefit at all. Unlike the lockdown predictions, predictions of disaster clearly turned out to be true, with the UN and Oxfam reporting the impact on global poverty and food prices. Cancer diagnoses were missed. Elderly people died alone. There are other costs, too, less obvious ones. Unfortunately, we do not live in a Disney movie, where true love always finds a way. Missed opportunities cannot necessarily be replaced. The obstruction of lockdowns means that families that would have otherwise formed, now will not. This is quite an incredible thing to take away from people. We also do not live in a world where resources can be brought forth by magic. Resources consumed today are simply not there for tomorrow. Lockdowns are a double whammy, where resources are consumed to pay for people to not create more resources. Countries spent simply vast amounts of money furloughing workers who, as Sweden shows, were at no risk from Covid relative to all the health risks they may face. Even if it were possible to keep a country Covid-free with such a policy, it will simply be paid for in the future when those resources, already spent, are not there to invest in healthcare targeting cancer and heart disease. There is no world in which it makes sense to redirect resources away from more serious and towards less serious threats to health. This is exactly what governments around the world have done. The United Kingdom now has a consistently higher excess mortality than pre-COVID, and this is attributed to strain on the NHS. People are now dying as the resources that would have treated them have already been consumed protecting them from something that posed no comparative threat. This chapter can only conclude by quoting Tacitus's famous observation of the Roman Empire, that where they make a desert, they call it peace.